The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. I think we may be underway here at the Glenn Show. This is Glenn Lowry. You've turned, uh, tuned in to the Glenn Show. Uh, we have a substack, uh, glennlowry.substack.com. Glenn Show is a conversation weekly and every other week. Uh, it's John McWhorter and I putting our heads together and uh, trying to make sense of what's going on in the world. Recent elections, uh, charges of anti-Semitism, flying a foot race in the theater and uh, all of that, and how we talk about racial inequality in the country. That's our agenda for today. So, hey, John. He's at Columbia, by the way. Columbia University, New York Times. I'm introducing you, John. Still am. Thank you, Glenn. And, and how are you this Sunday afternoon? Me, I'm okay. Deep in the throes of the memoir. Let's not talk about that anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my wife is away for a week. She's gone back to Houston to see after family business. So I'm, I'm kind of like a bachelor over here. And finding out how much uh, space in my life she actually takes up because I don't quite know what to do with myself when she's not around, except there's work, 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 work. But you do know uh, how you, you can handle yourself in the kitchen. So it's not that you have to eat bad food. I, I can. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if I'm left to my own devices in the kitchen, tragedy and fiasco will ensue because I'll eat a lot of sugar and a lot of fat. I won't eat mm -hmm. green vegetables and leafy things. And I won't, you know. So mm -hmm. she has prepared meals for me. Wow. She's uh, baked some lamb chops and she's made some chili and she's... Mm -hmm. uh, cooked some broccolini and some spinach mm. and greens mm. and mm. the, uh, you know, it's all laid out. And <laughs> I have a choice. I, I either eat the stuff, in which case I don't eat out and eat bad food. Or I put it down the garbage disposal before she comes home, because if she comes home and that food is still in the refrigerator, I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I do not put it yeah. down the garbage disposal. I'm eating that food. Even if it's chili for breakfast, I'm eating it. <laughs> You're giving me an idea about chili. Yeah. But not about marriage. Mm. <laughs> I, no, I, um, I completely get you about not knowing what to do with yourself when your person isn't around and liking it better when they're by your side. Yeah, I, I fully... I fully get that because, you know, you can do whatever you do. And, you know, you and me plenty, have plenty to do. There are deadlines we miss. Oh, there yeah. are things to read. There's always something to write. There's always something. But if that's all you've got, it's not the same. Yeah, I, I, I hear you completely. So, John, uh, what did you make of the election uh, outcome? Uh, here we are less than a week after the, uh, the election of November 8th. Glenn, you know, to tell you, you the truth, um, I'm, this is going to be parochial of me, and I'm yeah. genuinely uncomfortable revealing that this is how I feel, but 
I find that when it comes to just politics proper these days, it's not as interesting to me as it used to be because everything is so damn tight. It's all about these tiny margins, after which, because the margins are so tiny, Congress still isn't going to be able to get anything significant done. And you get kind of spoiled by reading Robert Caro and, you know, Lyndon Johnson in the grand old era and what Congress could do. And I know that even that was um, a special time. I mean, people who think Congress is bad now should think about what Congress was like 100 or 125 years ago. But still, you know, I was biting my nails just like anybody else. And I was very happy to hear last night what happened in Nevada. It's the first time I've ever said it right. Not Nevada, Nevada. But it's going to be the same old thing. It's just going to be alternating between Republicans who are perfect idiots. I mean, those Republicans who are. And all of our speculations and salivations over how pathetic they are. And in the meantime, sensible people on both sides of the aisle, although I am thinking mostly of Democrats, will only be able to get so much done because the margins are so thin if we're in the majority at all. So that's that's what I think, to tell you the truth. It's a, I'm actually thinking of um, Ezra Klein's column that I managed to get a peek at this morning. I'm depressed. It's I'd rather read a book. Yeah, it's just and I didn't feel this way ten years ago, but it's just all so narrow. What do you what do you think? Well, let me just try to tell you what I think about what you just said. You're you're a Democrat. That's what I got out of that. Mm-hmm. Not an especially enthusiastic one, but you know, nevertheless. You're glad that the Republicans didn't grasp control of the Senate. Uh, we speak here on a Sunday morning where it's just been revealed that Laxalt, the candidate in Nevada, lost that, or is it Nevada? Excuse me, John. You're Nevada. supposed to say Nevada. Yeah. Nevada. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that so always sounds wrong be, to me too. It's going to be 50-50 in the Senate, even if Herschel Walker somehow manages to prevail uh, over uh, his opponent. Um, sorry, uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock. Thank you very much. Forgive me, Reverend Warnock. Uh, even if uh, Walker prevails, it'll be at best 50-50 for the Republicans, so the Democrats maintain control of the Senate. You say you're bored with politics. These margins are small, but it does matter to you that Democrats maintain control of the Senate. And I move to ask you why. Why do you care if it's Democrats? Or you say sensible? You, you mean to tell me <laughs> that the Democrats quite clearly are sensible about policy and the Republicans are not? Can you elaborate? Yes. Um, more Democrats are than Republicans these days. So to the extent that there is a Republican wing who pretend to think that the election was stolen, who are you know hostile to... The rather obviousness of the fact that climate change these days is significantly man-made and dangerous to many places and people, not to mention, you know, continued belief even in trickle-down economics. That kind of Republican, that kind of Republican who also would um, make up stories about poor Paul Pelosi after a tragedy like that, anybody who would participate in that sort of thing, that wing, to the extent that that wing has influence— And it's not just a crazy wing. That wing has influence. To the extent that those people are entrusted with running the nation and getting things done, I'm I'm depressed. To the extent that we can at least put a check on that, and that's what's happened with this, you know, 50-50, then that's better than nothing. But to me, better than nothing as politics, you know, every four-year cycle for this to be the norm is frustrating. So, for example, not to... Dump again on Herschel Walker. We've already done it. I've done it in writing. It's an old joke (laughs) at this point. But the fact that someone like him 
could even be taken seriously enough to be this significant in how things go, that's the Republicans, people who would vote for him. That's, that's a problem. And so I, um, I'm just, I'm sad. And I look for things that seem to be less about stasis than some sort of progress. And it's not, it's not this. What's the difference between Herschel Walker and John Fetterman? Hmm. Is this the linguist in me? Fetterman was never great at debate. But the <laughs> fact that somebody can't talk because of broken a blood vessel is, reflects differently on what his underlying thoughts are than somebody who is just dumb. I'm sorry to say that about a black man in particular, but, you know, Walker is unreflective and knows nothing about the issues. Let's not get into his IQ. Knows nothing, cares nothing, not thinking about it at all, and doesn't even know that he's, he's making a fool of himself. That's just hopeless. Fetterman has a disability where his way of speaking might disguise what are more substantial thoughts underneath. And so I'm willing to give him more slack. I'm kind of surprised that he stayed in the race, honestly. Wait but, you know, between him and, saying, and Mehmet Oz, forget it. Betterman, take him. <laughs> so <laughs> let's suppose that the stroke left the uh, senator, soon to be senator-elect Fetterman, uh, cognitively impaired. And then mm. it's not merely a question of an audio processing and speech, but mm -hmm. it's really a press a issue of con that's certainly plausible. I mean, on the I mean, who am I? I'm not a physician. I, I don't I haven't examined uh, Senator Lex Federman, and I I mean him no ill. But I mean, the uh, just common sense reaction to seeing his public presentation that he might be cognitively impaired. That's not crazy. That that seems to me to be a plausible hypothesis. So what's his effective IQ and what's Herschel Walker's effective IQ? I mean, uh, in either case, you have a very kind of interesting phenomenon. I, I mean, I, I certainly agree that Walker doesn't come across as being in command of the issues. I agree with that. <laughs> doesn't come and, across. And you wonder, no. as he casts his ballots in the Senate, were he to be elected, who would be actually deciding what he voted for and what would it mean? Because he's obviously yeah. standing in for something. But exactly. there's a sense in which, in my mind, Fetterman is doing the same thing. And I wonder who will actually be the senator from Pennsylvania and what will be the processes by which his decisions about voting would be arrived at. And I don't know. It, it's... <laughs> Glenn, I don't know, because this is very this is a linguist. This is a linguist. I mean, well, no, I, let me just finish the thought. The, the, the uh, disability argument, the anti... Able, uh, ableism argument is Fetterman simply has an impairment. He needs uh, support. People, some people have physical impairments. They can't walk. They can't whatever. They need support. Support him. And it's uh, it's kind of ableist to have any other view. But we can't say that about somebody who simply has a vocabulary that's you know not especially impressive or doesn't think well on their feet. They're, they're not simply impaired. And uh, our sensibility for disabled should kick in and we, we should give them, cut them a little bit of slack and be prepared to accept them if the people vote them in. Uh, what's, <laughs> I'm not sure I see the difference exactly. <laughs> I, I do, I do. Um, and this is, this is why. It could be that what happened to Fetterman also affected his reasoning capacity. It certainly sounds like it from the way he talks, but there's a disconnection because there are people who are brilliantly articulate, 
who can barely tie their shoes, literally. I mean, it's a, there are a couple of disabilities where a child grows up almost hyper-articulate but will never be able to take care of themselves in any way. That, that exists. And I have known adults who were wonderful talkers who for one reason or another, or you know, things that happened to them brain-wise, would never be able to take care of themselves again and yet could talk rings around you despite the fact that they were losing contact with reality, et cetera. Then on the other hand, I've known plenty of people who are absolutely brilliant, who can barely rub a noun and a verb together, where you have to gradually realize that they are absolutely wonderful thinkers, but then, especially on their feet, as opposed to if they're reading a speech, can't really talk, never really finish a sentence. I think of various scholars I've known. So to me, the two things aren't connected. Fetterman could be brilliant. He just doesn't sound like it. Now, he might not be. Uh, we're not his exactly. doctor. But I, don't, I think we'd have to wait and see whether he seems capable of making real decisions and explaining his reasoning, et cetera, et cetera. And also, is he going to get better? And I, I don't think science knows at this point how you can predict that. Is what he is now, is that the best it can be? Or is he building back? And so, you well, know, often you can't know until after a few years whether somebody has built back. Okay. Okay, I, but well, I, I want to probe this political identity thing a little bit. So the Democrats, in your view, are better than Republicans. Here, let me play devil's advocate. People will realize that, of course, I have a great deal more sympathy for Republicans as you, than you do. They will realize that from our uh, previous conversations. But I just want to play devil's advocate. I should say that I felt like you did 20 years ago, maybe 15, but things have changed. Go ahead. Trump. Trump probably in MAGA, the MAGA uh, uh, I'm guessing that that's what's, that's what's pushed you in this direction. But I want to talk about crime. What, what do you think about the justice DAs? How about Larry Krasner in Philadelphia? How about uh, this guy in uh, Manhattan? I forget his name now. Uh, Braggs, uh, Alvin. Yeah. Uh, how about Kim Fox in uh, Chicago? And, uh, you know, what about uh, the guy that was recalled in San Francisco, Chesa Bodine and what, yeah. what about the guy down in Los Angeles uh, who's uh, in the similar spirit that there are others? Mm -hmm. And they have uh, rescinded uh, the use of cash bail and put a lot of people on the street who are dangerous. And there's a crime spike and whatnot. And you've got a whole lot of rhetoric around what to do about crime. The Democrats have one point of view. I think it's clear, at least the... Uh, outlines of it are clear. And if they deny defunding the police, they can't deny the fact that a, at their core of their constituency are a lot of people who want to defund the cops and so on. And the Republicans have a different type. So that's, what about the border? Uh, mm -hmm. Very clearly different sensibilities, not just concrete policies, but fundamentally different philosophies about the nature of the country. Are the Dems got the better of that? Do they? I don't know. What about wokeness? You wrote a book called uh, Woke racism for crying out mm. loud. The mm -hmm. guy that just got through getting a landslide Republican victory in Florida, I'm talking around DeSantis in his victory speech, said, Florida is where woke comes to die. He's running mm. against the thing that you're against. He's a Republican, John. What about critical race theory, etc.? What about the 1619 Project, etc.? What about affirmative action as a Bible and so forth? What about appealing to racial little peculiar identity things like appointing people based on their genitalia and their skin color to the U.S. Supreme Court? You for it or against it? So I'm confused, John. I get it. Is this, is this democratic 
thing, a posture, or is it rooted in a uh, Democratic Party preference, a posture on your part, excuse me, and with respect? Or is it is it rooted in a, in a comprehensive assessment of what the party stands for and, and what you believe in yourself? Yeah, I get it. Um, it would be very advantageous of me as the... Um the quote-unquote contrarian, controversial black thinker, to always say, but I'm a Democrat because I'm hoping that people won't be so mad at me. That would be very canny. But in this case, it is genuine. For one thing, I've always been. So it wouldn't be that I was a Republican for a certain time and then, you know, saw the light. Like or something me, like, like me. Um, frankly, yeah. <laughs> it's I've all, I was raised by somebody who, you know, taught literally taught a course called Racism 101 at Temple University in the 70s. So this is um, this is me bred to the bone, despite the fact that because of my reserved manner, many people assume that I must be a conservative Republican and also because I worked for the Manhattan Institute. But the Manhattan Institute doesn't mean that you're a Republican. And talking like this and moving like this and laughing like this does not mean that you're a Republican. Now, that's not what you're saying, but frankly, it's what a lot of people are thinking. But the point is, which party seems better posed to be in the position of running a complex nation in a mature, thoughtful way at any time in the future? And so all the things you described, which I did write a book against, are one kind of Democrat who get a lot of attention and scare a lot of people because of the way they use language. And what I've tried to argue in woke racism is that we need to stop letting them scare us. And signs are, and you know, I vary from week to week on this, but signs are that what made me so angry as to write that book in 10 minutes in 2020 is ebbing. It's beginning to pass. I think David Brooks was right the other day. Those people are winning in some subquarters, but people are getting tired of the sorts of things that happened in 2020. Those people are beginning to be on the ropes. And to the extent that they're not, still. So, for example, I'm disgusted at the idea that there's no real crime problem using the numbers to pretend that there's been no uptick or that nobody has any reason to be concerned in particular districts. The idea that you let dangerous people out onto the street, all with the tacit assumption that it's what society deserves because it's not really these people's fault that they're criminals, et cetera. I, I have no truck with any of that, what used to be called root causes. That's what all of this is. But it doesn't always have to be that way. There is pushback against people like that. And Glenn, the question for you is, if it weren't the Democrats who were in control, if you're not going to put your hat in with the Democrats and you're going to put it in with the Republicans, what do you think they would do about crime? Because if I may, you spend an awful lot of time in your career arguing about over-incarceration. You think that the Republicans would not wish to do what somebody could 10 years later call over-incarceration, and it would be disproportionately black and Latino people who are over-incarcerated. I don't see that the Republicans would have better ideas. Yes, some, but the Republican Party has been taken over by lunatics. So why would I put my hat in with them when I don't see any chance of them changing anytime? Soon. It doesn't seem like there's as much of a vigorous conversation among Republicans other than the two or three we know in the think tank world who have kept their sense. But in terms of votes, in terms of this mostly rural white population who are voting for them and also the new people who are coming on, how would I, what would motivate me to start pulling the lever for Republicans? I just can't see it, especially now. I thought about it in the aughts, but now? I don't have to explain why I'm voting for the party of Trump, I, even to myself. <sighs> okay, well, they'd be tougher. What would the Republicans do? They'd be more pro-cop. They'd be more anti-teachers union. 
Uh, they'd be tougher on criminals. When people would go to jail, they would be disproportionately black. They'd be criminals. Uh, yeah, I wrote a lot about over-incarceration because we went from 500,000 in 1980 to 2 million at the turn of the century. In a 20-year period, we quadrupled the number of people on lock and key. Blacks were overrepresented amongst them. My sentences were too long. We were too punitive. We overshot, in my opinion. Uh, but I think the post-George uh, uh, Floyd uh, uh, upsurge in crime that's come out since the disorder in the summer of 2020, where we stood down, Republicans would have done what Tom Cotton wanted to do. They would have deployed uh, muscular forces, what President Trump wanted to do, although he didn't have the authority to do it without the request from local uh, officials, they would have deployed the force on the streets to try to keep order. They, there would have been a, a, a deep uh, uh, a punitive uh, aspect to it. And you're asking me now, you're asking me to choose between um, Portland or Minneapolis uh, or Kenosha, Wisconsin or Milwaukee or Baltimore, Freddie Gray or whatever, on the one hand, the way it went down. And a tough-minded, uh, pugilistic speech is being given by people in the White House and in other uh, local officials cracking down and locking people up who are behaving disorder. I choose the latter. I choose mm -hmm. the latter unapologetically. I would be saving black lives by choosing the latter. Uh, I'd be preserving the integrity of our society uh, and, and the security and safety of our people by choosing the latter. I don't have to apologize about that. To the extent that my disgust that over-incarceration would have led me into a defund the police posture, I would have been very wrong. Uh, and, I, you know, I go with Ralph Manguel. Uh, I, I go I with Heaven McDonald. I go with Heaven McDonald. I go with Roland Fryer. Uh, I, I think the anti-cop reaction has been an absolute fiasco and a disaster for Black people. In the immediate effect, more dead black bodies in the cities, uh, and in the long-term political effect, alienation of a silent majority of the American populace from an identification with the causes of these uh, communities. Um, so uh, I think the cost of wokeness, the certitude of moral uh, rectitude and the kind of self-righteousness with which people are pronounced uh, that has led into uh, absurdities like prison abolition as a policy, the, the cost of that uh, to the people on behalf of whom those such arguments are alleged to have been made uh, will be reckoned uh, in the fullness of time. So, you know, uh, you know, I think when I look at these cities, look at Baltimore. Democrats have ruined it. Look at what's going on in Chicago. Read uh, Ken Griffin, the, uh, the financier billionaire guy whose uh, Citadel hedge fund just moved out of Chicago and relocated to Miami. And they're going to spend a billion dollars building a headquarters in Miami that could have been built in Chicago because that city is becoming unlivable. Follow what the journalists who, are, who don't have their heads up their butts are actually saying about what's going on on the streets in Chicago. Democrats have ruined city after city. They've ruined Detroit, et cetera. So, I, you know, Rick Caruso for mayor of Los Angeles. Even some uh, trendy 
left-leaning celebrity uh, political funders in L.A. are beginning to line up behind the Republican. I guess he's not a Republican, actually. I think it's a he's a uh, used to be Republican. Is now officially a Democrat, but he's a businessman yeah. developer uh, versus the uh, black political royalty congresswoman who's uh, Bass, uh, who's running out there. I go with the Republican. Uh, so I want it to go back to what happened in the late eighties and early nineties when Democrats realized that they needed to, that word I just used triangulate and what Bill Clinton did with the DNC There's a certain kind of person who looks back on that now as a mistake. I don't, I have a hope that there can be a democratic party that can be compassionate, but honest about that issue that you're talking about, which is one of many. Crime is a big thing, a huge thing, but I'm thinking about the party as a whole, who should be running the country. On those issues, though, you're right. I mean, I feel the hardest thing about being a commentator on race is, you know, what I've learned from you since 2016 and the fact that it simply can't be heard, which is that there is no cop racism problem when it comes to murders. And I will say that loud and clear. When it comes to murders, there is no cop racism problem. The data is all in. And the fact that anybody would hear that and would go desperately looking for evidence that it isn't true, hoping that I'm wrong, is a real symptom of our times. The cops are not as nice to black people. Roland showed that. But there's no murder issue. It's not about race. It's about socioeconomics. And anybody who, you know, feels shivved by my saying that or feels like it's their responsibility to go out and show that it's not true needs to examine why. Why do you have endorphins in showing that there is cop racism that creates these murders where you look at what the statistics actually show and insist that the disparity between black murders and white murders that, that exists is proof that it's about racism as if suddenly socioeconomics doesn't matter. No, I refuse. No. I think there's something wrong with this ethos that says that you get your jollies by proving that somebody like me who says this, or even in this case, you know, Heather McDonald, Roland, et cetera, the furore with which people are determined to prove that we're wrong on this is a sickness, honestly. But nevertheless, but, that's just one thing. Yeah, I hear you, I hear you about the crime. Living in New York City at this point, I can, you know, see. What's going on? I'm beginning to be afraid to ride the subway with my girls who are seven and 10 because God knows who you're going to wind up in that car with. And, you know, it's interesting. I saw something the other day. It's going to be one of my John anecdotes. Sitting in the train car and um, have my girls. And I hate to say it, but a black man, let's call him 32. And after a while, you start to recognize the signs, the, the look on the face, the carriage, the mumbling to himself. He's angry. He's a little bit off. And he's carrying a bow, like bow and arrow, big bow. Now, I couldn't <laughs> find the arrows, but he had a lot of kind of baggage on him. He's got a bow. And he's walking around mumbling and, you know, kind of shuffling. And of course, he has to be projecting the anger, you know, the, 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 the kind of aggressive masculinity. And he's got this crossbow like he's in, in a Robin Hood movie. And not just a little one, not like archery in camp. He's got a bow, like the sort of thing that medievals used to kill each other with. No one knows why. He's not saying anything about it, but he's holding it. And he's kind of harboring it. And I started thinking, if this motherfucker has an arrow, 
is this person going to shoot somebody with a bow because he's crazy and wants to prove something? And this is why I'm telling the story. There's a certain kind of person listening and thinking, doesn't he have compassion you know, for et cetera? Of course, of course I do. But still, there's a woman sitting there, a white woman of a certain age. And, you know, you know the signs. And this is really obnoxious, but she listens to NPR. You know, Joyce Carol Oates is one of her favorite authors, that woman. And she sits there and she says, after this man finally goes out the door and starts brandishing this bow over in the next car, well, you meet all kinds in New York, don't you? <laughs> and so, in other words, he's just a character. You know, he's a little off. He's just like the town drunk. That man could have shot an arrow through somebody's chest. It could have been a different news story. And yet this woman is programmed not to see that as a problem because then she's dissing black criminals. That's what she's thinking. I get you, Glenn. I get it. Because that little scenario was a sign of the times. It wasn't just that man, because you see that man every day in some form. And it wasn't just that woman, because that woman is every 10th person in New York. It's disgusting me. I, I hate it. Nevertheless, it doesn't make me want to vote for Republicans these days. That's all. All right. So <laughs> let, let, let's move on. Let's let, let's move on to what I want to talk about. Uh, what have you been writing uh, in your column of late? I, I haven't been able to keep up with you. Um, me either. <laughs> I've been writing about the, um, and it's me being a little hobby horse-ish, but it really does move me because I am a lapsed theater person. And so I hear from a lot of theater people. And I think we're going to be talking about this in the near future further on the show. But yes, indeed. there's a I movement wanna... in theater, the woke movement in theater, the idea being to pretend that American theater is this cesspool of racism and needs to be utterly revolutionized so that there's as much as, you know, 50% representation and participation by BIPOC people in the theater and that, you know, black people, et cetera, shouldn't have to play roles that they don't want to. Basically, that BIPOC people should be running the show as compensation for what's been happening before. And, you know, it's okay. There are some issues about race in the theater. Certainly, certainly they're there. I remember them from when I did it. And yeah, you want to talk about them and maybe this is a time to work on them. But the idea that theater is what these people are describing is play acting. It's just melodramatic agitprop that people are using because it makes you feel important. It's a way of seeming interesting to pretend that you are under siege from these racist white people in the theater all the time. And I'm seeing people get hurt. I'm seeing people running theater programs, just mystified at you know these cadres of people coming along, many of them white, claiming that the whole organization is a racist one and needs to turn upside down when the organization has been about as anti-racist as any organization in the country is because this is the fucking arts. And seeing individual people getting hurt, white people getting shunned and hurt and mistreated. For example, for John, excuse me for interrupting. Could you clear, clarify just by... Uh, Telling uh -huh. a little bit more specifically what you're this talking about. This is going to be a, a prelude to something we're going to talk about more. Um, there's a theater. There was a regional production of a musical. And um, at one point in this musical, which is um, about 30 years old, so it's a relatively modern musical. At one point in this musical, a Latina character gets called a dirty name by a white character. Okay. So they're rehearsing this, and the actress playing the Latina character, who is Latina, gets angry. 
because she feels that the white actress playing the white woman isn't hurling the slur hard enough. And that therefore, when she, the Latina in her character, has to respond with anger and, you know, getting really upset, that when she gives that response as the character, the character looks like a crazy Latina because the white woman isn't leveling the slur hard enough. Now, that's a concern. And what you do in the theater is you go tell the director and all of this gets resolved and calibrated. But instead, because of the new mood, um, we see you white American theater is the name of the website that puts out the manifesto that represents this kind of mood. The actress in front of the whole company just, you know, has a conniption and accuses this white actress of racism in making her look like a crazy Latina and talks about the racism that's just endemic in the theater. The other people of color in the cast join her in this anger at racism in the theater. And then one person, um, white guy who's in the cast, you know, very peaceably tries to say, are there more constructive ways of dealing with this than all of this anger? and all of this, you know, the high volume and the not listening. And for this, he was shunned absolutely by every BIPOC person in the, com- in, the com- in the country, in the company for the rest of the production. As in, you know, nobody wanting to be in a car with him. He's not at the party at the end. Just shunned because he was determined to be a racist on the basis of this. That's shit. That's just shit. That shouldn't have happened. And yet the thing is, there was nothing extraordinary about this company. There's nothing extraordinary about this production. It was representative of a new mood that that actress would have felt comfortable acting that way and was indeed supported, including by people in authority in the company. No, I'm sorry, but no, somebody has to say something about that other than shaking their heads in the background. So that was the sort of thing that I was um, writing about in the first piece that I did about theater. And I gave some other examples. And all of it is just water from the same well that we've been talking about for years. It's just People exaggerating. A foreigner watching this thinks, why are they exaggerating? Not that racism doesn't exist, but why this play acting? And it just won't, it won't do. And I get especially upset when I see it in the theater because it's a place that I've, you know, I've loved a great deal. It's art. It's the arts. And it's being besmirched by people pretending, by people pretending this rage against something that barely exists. And I think it really... It's, it's a perversion of the way a civilized society is supposed to work through things. Okay, that, that's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking about Don Baton, the pseudonymous uh, conductor of orchestras who was our guest and talked about woke uh, uh, anti-racist sentiments and their effects in the world of, uh, of orchestral uh, classical music. So we have a, a similar thing developing in the theater. I, there are a number of aspects of it that interest me. The BIPOCs are all in alignment, are they? I mean, it's obviously a wide range of people from Native Americans to Latina to et cetera. You know, what but about the Asians, the et thing. cetera? But right. are all the, Bi- the BIPOCs are all of one kind of pe- that's one thing that occurs to me, the solidarity. So what happens if, if there's diversity of thought amongst the people, quote unquote, of color? Um, another thing that occurs to me is that people are taking their artistic uh, efforts as political in some sense. That is, they're infusing their performative offering with a sense of their identities and of the urgencies of the moment. And they, they want their art to speak to that. And I'm not sure that's always a bad thing, although I can see how it could be corrupting 
uh, and and flattening. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing that occurs to me is power within the within the organization. Who actually is in control? You say the director. The director gets to resolve. But I'm imagining in your story. I don't know. The director himself might have or herself come in for a real you know pushback if they didn't adjudicate it in a way that was consistent with what the BIPOC coalition thought was was required. Uh, mm-hmm. Another thing that occurs to me in listening to you is the, the that the charge of racism carries so much weight, you know, where it's it's such a, uh, you know, it's like calling somebody a witch, you know, it's like accusing them of a, a, of a profound apostasy. And this even in the event of different interpretations, we're all sitting with the script, reading, you know, I'm this character, you're that character. We have lines that we have to, Recite. And the question is, what emo- emotional, you know, articulation that we bring bring to the representation of this script, and people can have different views about that. And uh, but the power to decide. I'm a BIPOC. This is a issue of uh, racism. You must interpret it in this way, kind of thing. So, I mean, I'm not yeah. sure this this person is wrong in the specific charge. I'm made to look. My character is made to look in a way that is contrary to how I think this should be presented in virtue of the way in which you are addressing my character. That seems like it's, in principle, a legitimate thing to say. Sure. But for that to go into this, you know, this fury and this, you know, creed occur against racism permeating the industry, I'm going to give you another one because this sort of thing really needs to be called out for what it is. And there are a lot of people in that business who aren't in a position to. I'm sure there was a, a BIPOC person or two in the cast of that production who did not agree with this, but I completely understand why they wouldn't have had it in them to say anything. I'll bet there are people who were you know, sending emails and having little phone calls with people back home saying, I, I can't say anything about this because I don't want to be shunned by the company. But there was, um, right now there's a production of 1776, which is a musical about the... Um, the, the development and signing of the Declaration of Independence and better than it sounds, it's playing on Broadway. And it's an old piece at this point. It, it's from 1969, but it's a staple, theater staple. And it's cast with all women and women who are not only women, but there are women of color. There are trans women. There are various kinds of women. And 1776, needless to say, is a show about characters who were all men except for, for two. And so it's a male show. And it's been cast with women and women of all different colors and orientations, et cetera. You'd think that would indicate a certain progress on race in the theater and as well as other things. But no, 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 no. A Filipino-American woman in the cast got mad. Why? Because there's one number in 1776 that is about slavery that's about the slave trade. It's against the slave trade. It's a rather odd number in the whole thing. It's clearly a little bit of a gesture in 1969 to the new mood, but okay. It's a song called Molasses to Rum. In this production, they decided, I've seen it done this way, they pantomimed a slave auction behind the person singing the number. Now, before the white producers decided to stage this behind the number, they asked the black people in the cast, the black women, is that okay? How do you feel about that? Okay. Now, the Filipina-American actress, whose name is Sarah Porkalob, decided that this was offensive because in not asking the other BIPOC people in the cast how they felt about putting a black slave auction behind the number, by not asking them how they felt, that made them seem white. 
that made them seem white adjacent. So that was wrong. And so she's furious with the producers and says she's only giving a part of herself in performance energy to the production, saying this to the press. Now, of course, the problem with this is, let's say that the producers had asked all BIPOC people in the cast how they felt about a black slave auction. The complaint would certainly have been, you're lumping us all together. You don't see us all as people. She is she's making it so that they're damned if they do, damned if they don't. What she's trying to do is not create progress. What she wants is to complain. What she wants is to be indignant about discrimination, and she will be indignant about discrimination no matter what happens. It's a purpose that she's chosen. That's not progress. That's the new we see you white American theater mood. And it shouldn't be, it, it needs to be questioned. It should not be the way theater has to go. I fear where theater goes if that sort of person continues to be allowed to run the show, so to speak, and to decide what should and shouldn't be done. Especially when, in a case like that one, or even the one that I talked about before, there's nothing anybody could do. There's no way to satisfy. No, nothing, nothing could work. You've got to be indignant. So, Because, of course, the one I talked about before, let's say the white actress head, right from the beginning, right from the first readings, hurled out that slur with a snarl. Bam. Well, wouldn't that have been, you're making me uncomfortable by saying that so vigorously? Couldn't we just get into it gradually? You're, you're making, you, it seems like you're going between, you know, real life and the theater. You have to be sensitive to my feelings. Don't hurl that so hard. Certainly. You can certainly imagine the same thing. That person couldn't have been satisfied. I don't think that that's good. So that's something I covered in that theater piece. Did you ever read this old novel by Ishmael Reed called Reckless Eyeballing? Ishmael was so recreationally mean to me in the aughts and has been to uh, other people in the past that I don't read him. No, unfortunately. I think this is, or this predates the aughts, but uh, it's, it's I, I think it's actually worth attention. <laughs> uh, it's about the theater. It's about race and feminism in the theater. Uh, the central mm -hmm. character is a black playwright who's trying to get his play produced. And uh, he's he's writing about uh, uh, Jim Crow South and lynching and uh, whatnot. And I mean, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time recounting because it's been 30 years since I looked at this book, but uh, it, it when I, maybe 25 years when I did read it, it, it had a, it, 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 it left an impression on me. Uh, be, uh, be, and it, it's about identity. It's about feminism. It's about politics. It's about control of what gets produced in theater. Um, and uh, uh, the uh, the line between art and politics, and the line between the you know, it's a kind of you know Alice Walker is I has, has uh, emerged as a as a star you know the color purple and all of that, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the depiction of black men as this kind of overbearing, monstrous, uh, malicious uh, you know kind of, uh, a thing, and uh, how. Anyway, you would enjoy the novel, even though you hate Ishmael Reed, I predict, based on what it is that you've just been saying. Without, Maybe I should take uh, yeah. Without attributing any political position to you in the, in the morass of this kind of thing. So I want to ask you about something else, John. Have you been following the anti-Semitism debate? Uh, Kanye West uh, uh, having uh, made some statements and... Kyrie Irving, the basketball player, the New York uh, Brooklyn Nets. That's uh, you. You. That's uh, you live close, don't you? 
what do you what do you think about this uh, upsurge of uh, black anti-Semitism amongst celebrities, if any, and uh, how it's being handled, whatnot? There's an element in the black community of thinking that it's okay for us to be anti-Semitic because Jews are mostly white. So we get a pass because white people are the racist, white people are the ones in power. So we're allowed to not like Jews. But it's, it's bad optics given the Jewish role in the, in the classic civil rights movement in the fact that you know, G- Jews undergo considerable persecution, including today. It's bad optics. But the reason it feels so natural to somebody like Kanye is because the Jews are, are white. And then also, I think another part of it is that sense that Black Caribbean and African immigrants tend not to have that black Americans do. It's one of the main dividing lines is the idea that it's fundamental to our identity to be aggrieved, that we're owed, that we're victims, that we're just not done right to. That's part of what it's supposed to be, to be an advanced black person with something interesting to say if you're talking about black American. And so there's that embrace of the idea that we're supposed to be angry at Jewish people and how they run the world and they run the banks. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you have people, black people living today who sound like Henry Ford. And, you know, I get the humanity of it. I had a very good friend back in the 80s and early 90s. He was a a Harlemite and um, also a black Muslim. And he was you know, a very modern person in almost any way you could think of. But as you got to know him well, you realize that he had this, what I would now call recreational anti-Semitism. He had plenty of you know, Jewish friends, Jewish more than friends. He didn't have any real problem with Jewish people. But there were all these little offhanded remarks calling New York City, Jew York City, all these little things that it was clear that to him, part of bonding with black people was to indicate this kind of anti-Semitism. And the way He, as this progressive person, made sense of it, I'm sure. I never even brought it up. At the time, I just thought, this is obviously a pose. It's something he kind of enjoys. We're supposed to bond over this. It's kind of primitive, but who's perfect? I'm certainly not. But the idea is that, well, they're white. And then he could think of the history of Jewish people, quote unquote, taking over Harlem, et cetera, et cetera, in the past. And so he had that past grievance. But they're white and we're black. And so we're supposed to be shaking our fist at something. But yeah, that's what's going on with, you know, Irving and West, not to mention that they want to get a jump out of people. But how do you get the jump out of people? The reason that it's going to be that is, I think, that sort of thing. Wow. Well, I'm from Chicago. I came up in the 50s and 60s. Uh, There was a district uh, where you could find uh, pretty good clothing, pretty cheap from one of a number of uh, different, uh, you know, department stores and sidewalk vendors and things like that. It was on Maxwell Street on the near southwest side of the city. Uh, and it was called Jewtown. And literally, I mean, coming up unreflectively without any thought, people would say, well, I'm going over to Jewtown to buy a suit of clothes. That's just how you refer to that part of the city in my part of the city in 1962, it was Jewtown. Nobody meant anything by it. That's just what it mm-hmm. was. My uncle Alfred flirted with this black Hebrew stuff. Uh, he was an a autodidact type who read uh, this or that little book 
and came up with theories and, you know, would integrate it with his reading of the Bible uh, and would come back with, you know, we are the original Hebrew people. He believed that the a lost tribe of Israel, you know, he thought that the quote unquote white Jews and obviously Jews, is it obvious? You say Jews are white. I, I think that's in dispute. My friend David Josephson actually has a piece that's going to post at the, the at the glennlowry.substack in which he takes up this issue. Jews are not white. You know, he says Jews are Jews. And I see his point. But in any case, uh, it was it was more specific, this uh, what's going to be called anti-Semitism, this view that is propounded in this uh, film uh, that uh, Kyrie Irving uh, tweeted. I, that's how he tweeted. got into trouble because he he tweeted out the uh, retweeted some uh, link to something that was anti had uh, anti-Semitic tropes. That's that's the way they put it. Uh, and uh, what I'm saying is, I know this world. I know this world out of which it came. This is the same world out of which Louis Farrakhan comes. The same world out of which the Honorable Elijah Muhammad of the Nation of Islam comes. It's full of conspiracy theoretic stuff. Sure, it's influenced by protocols of the elders of Zion and a lot else besides. Uh, the uh, uh, intellectual historian Wilson Moses has a beautiful book, I think, called Afrotopia which was published 30 years ago or so, in which he traces the intellectual history of these ideas, which go way back, they go back to the 18th century amongst uh, African-descended intellectuals and, you know, not just about Jews, but about a lot of stuff besides the idea that the, Egypt, the ancient Egyptians were flying helicopters and kind of crazy stuff like that comes out of this, comes out of this world. It's, it's uh, of, of, uh, Afrocentric fantasy, you know, Wakanda forever, Wakanda forever. <laughs> the 19th century version of Wakanda thinking was uh, black people were once a great people and they've now been, you know, stymied by the, by the whites or whatever. Um, and, and the Jewish stuff would fit into that. I heard about Jews in the slave trade when I was, uh, you know, 22 years old. And, you know, I'm not asserting it's true. I'm just saying I heard it. I'm saying it was being said. Uh, the, uh, I once had this conversation with Nathan Glazer, the uh, late great uh, sociologist who was at Harvard and, you know, wrote books about uh, American ethnic uh, culture and politics and social life. Um, and he stressed the fact that you had this neighborhood secession in a lot of cities where Jews who had been working class uh, and they were shopkeepers and landlords uh, were seceded in the flowing of people into the city and they moving out to the suburbs and those neighborhoods come to be occupied by black populations. But the shopkeepers and the cobbler and, and uh, dry cleaner uh, establishment and the uh, green grocer and the uh, landlord and all of that, you know, many of them are still Jewish. And you had this kind of, Glazer was emphasizing this kind of head bumping of uh, friction between uh, people who are on the lower end of the economic spectrum in this kind of uh, urban competitive uh, milieu. You don't have the money for your rent. Somebody's knocking on the door asking for their rent. The guy who's knocking on the door uh, more often than not is Jewish. And the guy who's on the other side without the money to pay is, you know, this kind of thing. Um, this is, this is, uh, I've been going on for a long time. I haven't yet spoken to the question about anti-Semitism. I mean, I, I have a hard time seeing 
The phenomenon that I've been describing, which is within certain quarters of African-American culture, a uh, embrace of some conspiracy theories and a sentiment of uh, vis-a-vis Jewishness, which is coarse uh, and uh, uh, is, uh, you know, the, the kind of thing that uh, uh, inter-ethnic relations that you see amongst a lot of different groups, you see it vis-a-vis Catholics and so on uh, as well. So, so that exists. I have a hard time seeing it as um, a threat to the integrity, you know, to the to the safety, to the security of the Jewish community, because these people on the whole are, you know, the, are relatively weak. Uh, I don't see it as uh, being the same thing as white supremacist anti-Semitism. Jews will not replace us, which I think has a, a different route. But um, forced to actually address the issue publicly, I have to say what Dave Chappelle said in his introduction at uh, Saturday Night Live last night, which is, I have a statement to read. I abhor anti-Semitism in all of its forms. And I stand with the Jewish people in in their efforts to uh, defend themselves against it. And I abhor anti-Semitism and I stand with the Jewish people. But I can tell you this, when I did go to the Negev desert and visit the city of Demona, I found people from Chicago, black people from Chicago, living probably without authorization in Israel because they had, quote unquote, come home. Those people actually exist and they actually believe that ideology. It's a sect. But, but, but it is, uh, you know, I, 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 I met black people from Chicago in Demona claiming to have come home. Now, I, you can call that anti-Semitism. I, I don't think it does uh, justice to the, uh, to, the, to the complexity of it. I mean, but certainly, oh. <laughs> I understand my Jewish friends abhorring the idea that someone would stand up and saying, you're all imposters, you white Jews are not the real Jews. It's the, it's the Hebrews where the Ethiopian Jews or whatever it is where the real Jews. And, you know, uh, I stand with my Jewish brothers and sisters in opposition to anti-Semitism in all forms. <laughs> so do I. So what do we got? What's what? What else is on our on our plate? Oh, you're you're c- cooking up a major uh, set of uh, of uh, pieces, if I understand correctly, about um, how you think this uh, language of uh, of uh, opposition to structural racism or systemic racism, or whatever is uh, is not is not the right way to go. You want to talk about that a little bit? Um, I don't think that those are useful terms. And as a linguist, I'm supposed to just describe language and assume that you can't change it. And you probably can't. But the terms systemic racism, structural racism, and institutional racism are really frustrating to me because they imply that problems are ones that should be included under the term racism that aren't about what the core meaning of that word is in any sense that reasonable people should think of as normal. So racism is bigotry against people. That's where it begins. And the idea is supposed to be that that kind of bigotry can create phenomena in society that create different outcomes between the races conditioned by that bigotry and that therefore you call it societal racism. 
And what worries me about that term is that when you say racism, it creates a certain kind of response. You're battling racism. Now, you may not, you're not battling bigotry, but you're battling that the society is somehow opposed in this anthropomorphized way to black people succeeding. But the problem is that a society doesn't have agency. A society doesn't have feelings. And I'm not sure what use that abstraction is when often solving the problems that we group under this term systemic racism involves not fighting racism, but fighting other things that don't gracefully have anything to do with racism. And so let's say that there aren't enough black students in the high performing school. And you look at that disparity and you say systemic racism. Well, even if racism created the reasons for that disparity in the past, if those reasons are now in the past, things such as you know, white flight, things such as the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow, things such as what redlining can do in terms of wealth accumulation. If those things are now in what's increasingly the deep past, and what you need to do now is other things to increase the number of black students at a, at a high-performing school, then calling it systemic racism, I'm not sure what the point is, because when people are upset about systemic racism, they're not thinking about 1962. They're thinking about now. They're thinking, my job is to go battle the racism that remains. But racism is being used in such an athletic sense that I think it distracts people from thinking about the sorts of things that actually help people who need help. And so you talk about solutions to the problems that the black community has. And people are thinking, well, what about undoing the racism? But it's the result of racism, not racism itself. And so I think that we ought to say something along the lines of inequities between races. And the idea is not, you know, inequalities or something like that to imply something about ability, but inequities between races. We would shorthand that to just call it inequities. And so we would know that what we really meant was black and Latino people. And that's that's OK. But not inequalities, inequities. Excuse me for interrupting. Yeah. But the word is important here. It's not it's not just the fact of inequality. It's a moral indictment of the fact of inequality. Yeah. It seems to me yeah. that's conveyed when you say inequity. If you had said maybe inequality, I'm a bone to it the could be inequality group. without it necessarily being bad. Right. Pardon? Yeah. In this case, it's inequity. It's something that's unfair. And you work on that. And so there are two things. There's bigotry. I wish we could go back to that word. And then there are inequities that you work on. And maybe there's a relationship in, the, in history between them and bigotry, but you don't call it societal bigotry. You notice nobody says that. And yet we say societal racism and we're used to it. I wish we weren't. I think it's a very distracting way of using the word. It seems to me what's at stake here is you have disparities or inequalities, let's say in wealth holding, and you look at the racial numbers and there's a disparity. The median black has one-tenth or whatever it is of the median white household. That's a disparity. The fact, the plain fact of the disparity doesn't speak to the political issue of responsibility for the disparity. It doesn't speak to the ethical issue of the rightness or justness of the disparity. It, would, it is uh, silly, it seems to me, to say every disparity is ipso facto unjust. That's what Ibram X. Kendi says, but we're much more serious and deeply grounded in our thinking than uh, Professor Kendi. Obviously, disparities can exist without necessarily 
indicting society for them because groups are different. If I took the position that every disparity is ipso facto unjust, I would say that any group that does better than the average is also somehow uh, undeserving or, or uh, grounded on some iniquitous uh, process that has uh, produced that result. Groups are different, have different interests, uh, cultivate different aspects of their humanity to uh, levels of achievement that allow them to succeed at different rates and different human endeavors. If you're going to bring every such disparity under the umbrella of injustice in need of being redressed, that's a formula for tyranny and conflict perpetually. Uh, you know, it seems to me. So it's just kind of, you know, uh, obvious that it can't be. So then the question becomes what kinds of disparities are uh, subject to our moral, uh, you know, judgment and and, and sanction and responsibility for collective action to redress them. If there are health disparities, suppose the longevity is different between, is that ipso facto a question of injustice? So I think not. And I, I think all the work is in parsing when we observe disparities as between those which do and do not offend against our ethical sensibilities. And I think the use of terms like structural systemic racism is a linguistic trick to try to dodge that question and just import into our ethical discussion the presupposition that every disparity is ipso facto unjust. So that's, that's what I, I think. And I think I, they're getting away with it. Yeah. And I think um, we always have this little difference. I think it's less that they're consciously trying to pull the wool over our eyes than that they like the idea that there's one simple solution and they figure this is a simple solution that we need to just look to because it's probably a truth that cuts through everything that seems more complicated. And also, if you use the word racism, you get a jump out of people. I do think that that's what people were thinking and really adopting the term in the late 60s and early 70s. You get a jump. You make people feel like something still needs to be done. You keep the struggle going. I think there was some deliberateness there. But yeah, and of course, there are things that you can call systemic racism. Like, for example, doctors seem to think that black people are more tolerant of pain and it affects the way that they prescribe. Okay, I, can, I would call that a kind of racism and it is baked into the whole medical structure. That's societal racism. But most cases don't come out like that. There just simply isn't as much that would come out like that. And this is the thing, to bring this full circle. There are people listening to this who are thinking, Hey, they don't think there's a such thing as systemic racism, which is not what either one of us have said. We didn't say that there weren't phenomena that need to be addressed. We're just talking about what you call it. But the response for a lot of people is they're denying that systemic racism exists. Folks, that's a sickness. If that to you is what matters, if all you can hear from what we're saying is that we're denying that systemic racism exists, you're showing that you have come to think of that as a totem. You're thinking that the main job is for everybody to know that racism can be systemic. I didn't deny the kinds of phenomena that you're talking about. I'm talking about what we call it. And if it upsets you that much that I'm suggesting that we call it something that happens to have a little bit less vocal rhetorical snap, the problem is with you, not with me or Glenn. We're all talking about the same things. It's just that I'm talking about what do we do to focus people more on what actually helps people who need help? That's what I'm asking. I am not saying there's no such thing as systemic racism. 
Well, all the people who are saying there is systemic racism are Democrats. I hope you've noticed that. <laughs> that brings the <laughs> Touche, but yeah. <laughs> all right, John, you want to call it quits? We put in our time here. We have an hour in the can. Uh, you guys out there, like Glenn and John, tune in two weeks from now. We'll be back. Uh, and I think we're going to be talking with uh, your uh, playwright, uh, our theater actor, friend. Actor. Actor friend. Actor yes. friend. So we'll have to hook that up. Thanks a Very lot, good. John. Thank you, Take Glenn. Care. I'm going to go eat. All right. Enjoy that. I'll try. <laughs>